Welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. I'm your host, Mick West. My guest today is Alex, who has a rather different journey into conspiracism than most people who usually get into it via watching a video later in life. Alex was actually raised by conspiracy theorists. His parents were conspiracy theorists, and so for him, being a conspiracy theorist was essentially his default position. He eventually emerged out of this after going to college, but one of the last things he held onto was his belief in the 9-11 conspiracy theory, 9-11 being an inside job. And one of the things that helped him out of that finally was reading my book, Escaping the Rabbit Hole. So that was very interesting to me. And we talk about that in the second half of this interview. Uh, Alex, welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you just emailed me kind of out of the blue and uh, told me a bit about you know where you're coming from and stuff. Sure. So some of this has kind of like come to light for me more recently, you know, after having gone to therapy for a couple of years and just reflecting on things. But I think in a lot of ways, I was like brought up in that, in my upbringing, you know, that kind of like laid the foundation for being receptive to this kind of thinking. It's kind of like a generalized distrust of reality. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And that's one of those things growing up when you're a kid, you don't, notice it you don't pay attention to it because it's normalized you know you just want to believe your parents um and it's only kind of retrospectively that i realized hey my parents didn't have maybe normal ideas like you know listening to you know virulent conservative talk radio 12 hours a day and watching that kind of stuff on tv and anytime any kind of news event would happen it would suddenly be like, oh, well, you know, this is the inside job. Like this is, and for me, it was like, oh yeah, you know, as a kid, you think that's so fascinating. You're like, oh, right. my parents are so smart. They know something that other people don't know. Um, so this was, this was both your parents were kind of into uh, this type of thing. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, I think we maybe do ourselves a disservice just as people living in the 21st century to have this kind of idea that, maybe every conspiracy theorist looks like Dale Gribble because they're, they're not like that, you know, like not everyone's in their basement, like doing the research or whatever. Sometimes it's just people who kind of like you mentioned in your book, like have a mindset or maybe a proclivity. And what's so kind of pernicious about it is that we, we can't narrow down, you know, what it is. Is it like an affluence thing? Is it an intelligence thing? Is it a diet thing? You know, what's the thing? And the answer is, we still really don't know. Maybe there isn't a thing, you know? I think that's kind of a conclusion you came to as well, where you were like, yeah, we don't exactly know. So yeah, my parents weren't like wearing tinfoil hats or anything, but they were certainly, each of them in different veins, open to these kinds of like different ideas. And so growing up, that was just normal to me, you know, um, I don't know that they ever had, I'm from Oklahoma city. So, you know, the Murrah building bombing very Mm -hmm. close to us. I don't know that they ever had any like detailed kind of conspiracies or ideas regarding that, but they kind of have this general tendency to always be like, Oh, you know, there's more to the story as in kind of like to hand wave away and be like, Oh, you know, there's something happening behind the scenes. Like, I think the whole discussion of the Murrah bombing probably revolves around, like, uh, the Clintons and, like, their whitewater real estate thing and a lot of information that was supposedly stored there. Do you remember, like, when that happened? I mean, you must have been fairly young back then. Yeah, so I'm 29 now. Uh, That happened in 1995. I would have been about, like, four or five. 
So when, when would you kind of be first aware that uh, your parents were kind of a bit out of the mainstream? Honestly, as a kid, I, I didn't see it. A lot of this right. stuff came to light, like I said, later. You know, the first big sort of maybe my parents aren't quite normal happened for me in college when I had that like, hmm. you know, required break away from them where it's like, oh, I'm going to college, I'm on campus, I'm in a dorm. Um, and just kind of having that time of relax or away from them. And then also being exposed to new ideas, new information, different stuff, you know, it was enough for me to go, hey, this is different. You know, yeah. people think differently. Um, it's funny. It kind of reminds me of a, a story I heard once, uh, which was, I think, just on a kind of NPR, this American Life type thing. And they were doing an episode about things people never realized that were wrong until they, they talked to them, uh, talked to other people about it. And there was this one girl who uh, her family had chicken with every single meal. And, uh, and she, she loved it. She thought that's what people did. And she said, for her, it seemed perfectly normal. And she went through her entire like young life believing that everybody had chicken every single meal. Yeah. And then she went to college and she discovered this, this whole new world of people who don't eat chicken. And it was, it was like a revelation to her. And of course, now looking back on it, she realizes how, how silly it was. Yeah. And I'm wondering if like you going to college is a bit like that. You, you didn't have exposure to this, this you know, wider array of people. And then all of a sudden you're, you're forced into it and you, know, you get a realization. Well, and I think a huge part of it too is like, it's uh, sort of a mental heuristic. You know, like I mentioned earlier, everything always just defaults back to, oh, well, there's something else. There's more mm. of the story. You know what I mean? It's kind of, it's argumentatively moving the goalposts, I guess you could say, in the sense that it's always like, oh, well, there's always something else that's outside of the conversation, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. no matter what it is, any event. And I think, I mean, that's what we're seeing now with so much stuff in the news where it's like, it doesn't matter. They always just go one further. And it's like, there's nothing yes. there. It's very tenuous. It's just. So by default, you're saying like what, whatever's in the news is disinformation. If something happens then the official story is the false story, like dinner yeah. is always chicken. So it's like this, this default thing that you, you think of. Yeah. Uh, I think, and, you know, that's a great kind of example you brought up with the thing from NPR. Like I think, most people probably have those things in their life where they don't yeah. until they go out in the world and they discover, Oh, that is a little different, you know, but you would hope that it's maybe more for more people in the vein of the chicken for dinner thing versus the yeah. distrust of all possible information thing. I think everyone has, has a story like that. Uh, my, my story like that is that when I came to America the first time, uh, I got a taxi from the airport to the uh, place where I was staying and uh, this was like 25 years ago. And as we got on the freeway, the guy in the taxi turned on his meter. And I, at the same time that happened, I saw this sign uh, by the side of the freeway, uh, the freeway entrance that said meter on. And so I assumed, being new to America, that this sign meant that uh, taxi drivers had to turn their meters on where they got on the freeway. And uh, this sign was to remind them. Uh, and I believed this for the next... Uh, I don't know, 15 years or so <laughs> until I mentioned it to my wife. I said, Hey, did you know what those signs are for? They're to remind taxi drivers to turn their meters on. <laughs> you know, I was like, like 40 or something by that point. 
And I, I genuinely believe this because it got stuck in my head. But of course, what, what it is, is uh, a sign letting you know that the traffic is being metered by, by the stoplight. I don't know if you have them in no, your state, don't. but in, it's a California thing. Um, the on-ramps, they have signs that light up to tell you when the, the traffic metering, which means the, the you know, one car per red type thing, getting onto the freeway thing, is up and running. And I just felt so incredibly stupid. But yeah, <laughs> because it's, uh, it happened to me at a time when I was, I was younger and uh, uh, I guess like it was an entirely new world. I didn't know how America worked. It was my first yeah. time in America. And I saw this coincidence that led me to believe this thing, which is entirely ridiculous in hindsight, why they would have these special light up signs to remind taxi drivers to turn their meters on. Well, and I think part of that is too, like you come into it sometimes with these like neural contexts, right? Like you said, like everything had to be fascinating and new. So like mm-hmm. you refuse to let anything be banal. Like you were like, yeah. oh, you're like, oh, I can't, it can't just be about like traffic lights. It's got to be like, oh, this, they're courteously reminding taxi drivers. And like, that's a really easy, you know, two bits of data that you just and put them together. Indeed. And then held on to it for 15 years well there was nothing to i didn't i never thought about it afterwards Uh, yeah yeah yeah, which kind of you know reminds me of like something you mentioned is that you know you used to and we're probably getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here but if you if you didn't realize that for example there was a nist report about 9-11 then it would just kind of never it never kind of occurs to you to think about it, but let's let's talk about that later yeah. uh, because it's it's kind of like later on in the story. So, so you're growing up a young conspiracy theorist uh, when your parents <laughs> are both conspiracy theorists, which is kind of interesting because I, you know a lot of the people I talk to, I, you know, I ask them how do you get into conspiracy theories, and they they say I watched a video. Yeah, uh, and I, yeah, I they mean, watch that kind of like dovetails later for sure. Right. Um, so, would you say like the you you did you did you did you have an evolution of your, the type of conspiracy theorist you were after you went to college? So I'd say college for me, and especially like middle to late freshman year when I was, you know, 20, 19, 20, was probably like the nadir of conspiracy mm-hmm. sort of mindset. And again, I think a lot of that was, you know, I, my mind must have been like fertile for that kind of thinking, given right. my parents. My parents are very untrustworthy of other people, the government. I mean, just regular paranoid kind of thinking all the time. And so I think I had that kind of built in. And then this was still, I mean, it sounds ridiculous to call something like 2011, like the early days of the internet, but it was definitely a different internet time yeah, than now, definitely. if that makes yeah. any sense. I guess the early days of social media in a way. Yeah, it was kind of like, the dawn of like internet 2.0 like yeah. that social media thing like youtube was kind of coming into its stride as like what we know it of now like this mm-hmm. content platform and that is when yeah like, i remember being exposed to ideas like loose change and things like that you know kind of at the end of high school maybe 15 through 18 that's when and all of my friends were you know people that were also into that in high school whether or not that was like, you know, the only thing they cared about or if they also had other hobbies and activities, you know, it wasn't always the same, but, you know, it was very much reinforced with my friends and be like, Oh, look at this new thing. Or have you watched this video? And we had this kind of currency Mm. of YouTube videos, if that makes any sense. Sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, 
you see Liu's change and you're 16 or 15 or whatever. And you're like, oh my God, how can people not know this? You know, like it's, it's revelatory. You think, oh wow, it's, it's so obvious. It's right there. And yeah, I think yeah. part of it is, I mean, this is like likely what, you know, cult leaders and stuff do as well. Part of the mechanism of getting people beguiled into that, I think, is the sheer length. You know, mm. it like erodes some of your, you know, abilities to withstand otherwise spurious information just because you don't have maybe the uh, fortitude, you know, after two, three, four hours, you know, you're just sitting there watching, you're like, yeah, okay, yeah, ooh, yeah. I mean, I think arguably the same thing happens with TV and news media, but that's a whole different kind of conversation. Yeah, yeah. So it's like yeah, there's, there's so much stuff that in these, these, these videos that you can't really just kind of focus on one thing and then try to say, you know, debunk that one thing or whatever, because it's just, it's just overwhelming. It's, I kind a, of feel I mean, it's an inundation. And I think that's the point. So it was you, it was like a, a group of friends that uh, you were kind of sharing these videos with. Yeah. I mean, it was like my main friend circle. Right. Did they have similar backgrounds to you in terms of like, you know, the family backgrounds or did they kind of, do you think they came, came into it in a different way? Um, I think it was maybe a little different. Uh, from what I recall in high school, my friend group, for the most part, it was pretty unremarkable in the sense mm. that it's like, you know, other kids from the Burbs. Yeah. You know, kids named like Tyler, Patrick, that kind of thing. Just people that, you know, maybe skateboarded a little bit or uh-huh. played in bands or were in orchestra with me, stuff like that. Right. So just kind of typical teenagers and the yeah. just kind of sharing these things because they're cool and interesting. Yeah. And I think that's a huge part of it too. Is like at that age, you know, your mind is exploding, trying to make connections or see things. You know, we see this in like a lot of the biographies of like really intelligent people like Da Vinci or whatever is like that very formative, you know, 15 to 25 age or whatever. Your mind is like, electric it's just trying to do all these fascinating things Mm -hmm. you know that's why we have this kind of like trope i think of young entrepreneurs like steve jobs and you know all those people and so instead of channeling that maybe in some better direction if that's fair it gets channeled into just spinning these wheels of weird thoughts yeah it's just like yeah i don't know maybe it's like some kind of evolutionary thing that's when you leave your parents you form your own identity and they call it like the formative years i don't know if that's if that would be the formative years in like when you go to college yeah it kind of defines who you are as a person or or when you you know when you leave high school and enter the workforce or whatever it kind of solidifies you as a person i know i was very personally kind of very volatile as a person back in my late teens and early 20s that was when I kept a journal and I read the journal now and it's all full of philosophical musings and uh, uh, thoughts about the nature of the universe and how to change the world and things like that. So yeah. Just... And I think everyone has that mm-hmm. or hopefully everyone has that kind of like burgeoning period or whatever, but yeah, sometimes that gets channeled into weird places. And like, I think that's a lot of what we're experiencing now, especially, you know, with like Q and on and everything else that's going on with that. It's just, 
humans want to be creative. They want to think interesting thoughts. And sometimes that goes unchecked. And that might be an issue. <laughs> How did you kind of develop from there then? You said like it was uh, the nadir of your conspiracism. So that would have been, yeah, around like freshman, end of freshman year in college. And what happened with that, and this is I think, probably something I addressed in my email to you to kind of give you a little background, is that I was spending a lot of time just on my laptop in my dorm room, like four to six hours a day sometimes, sometimes like deep into the night, you know, researching this stuff and you can get lost. I mean, it's the rabbit hole. We have that phrase mm -hmm. for a reason. Um, you know, you start off, let me just try to see if I can remember some of this or map it out. Like, you know, one minute you maybe you're thinking to yourself, huh, why do we have this pyramid on the dollar? And the next thing you know, six hours later, you're researching like, ancient Sumerian religions and like yeah. reptiles from outer space who have, you know, like inseminated earth women and they like are here to take our gold and they're all trans-dimensional and you're, you're just reading all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay. And like one thing leads to another thing, you know, that's how you get on the, I was on like the David Icke train and I don't mean necessarily that like I believe 100% what this guy was saying, but a lot of kind of what I think was going on for me in that period had maybe less to do with thinking any of these things were true necessarily and more to do with just voraciously consuming mm -hmm. the next thing. Because it felt like there was never enough information. Like I always had to just find out the next thing, you know, okay, so it's shape-shifting lizards, but what else? And then it's like, oh, it's, you know, Nazi 13 foot giants that live under the crest of the earth. And you're like, yes, but what? <laughs> <laughs> so when you were, you doing this research, uh, did you, did you write stuff down? Uh, I don't think so. No. And I didn't like save links or anything. It was just a lot of searching and going and searching and going. Right. Um, it's interesting because, you know, it doesn't seem like, you know, if you're studying, uh, you're, you're a student at college, then you would, you would, you know, have a notebook and you'd take notes about things. You wouldn't just be consuming the content. And yeah. And people I do think, describe it as research. Yeah. And I think that's part of it now that I'm kind of thinking about it out loud is like, I think there are a lot of people maybe just like me who are participating in what they perceive to be research, but rather it's just mm. no different than watching a lot of netflix you know what i mean it's just yeah, yeah. weirdly flavored netflix it's and certainly like for me like that's definitely what it's become now i mean kind of like i mentioned with the whole wallpaper thing in the oval office or whatever it's like i kind of scan right. occasionally to see like what's up or you know i try to see keep current i guess yeah, yeah but yeah. mostly as a point of amusement you know because kind of like going back to the loose change and like this waterfall of information that comes over you. I think part of the tactic when it comes to, for lack of a better term, this is going to be kind of charged, but when it comes to like indoctrinating people into these beliefs, part of it is to just 
shotgun a lot of really detailed information at them to where it is so overwhelming. And I'm sure you've had this experience too. Like you don't have the opportunity to stop them at every single point and say, hold on, let's address this one point. This is false because, and there are 102 points down the road. You know what I mean? And so your brain kind of goes into this shut off mode where it's like, Oh, well, I guess, I mean, dang, this is so much information. It must be right. And it's like, no. Yeah. Have you, have you heard the term uh, gish gallop? No. It's, uh, it's quite famous in kind of debunking and skepticism circles. And it, it was uh, a technique uh, invented by a guy named Gish, uh, who was a preacher. And he, he used to debate, you know, atheists or whatever, or people who weren't of the same religion as him. And he had a technique where he would basically uh, just rattle off points one after another, like from the Bible and from, you know, from his work and whatever. And uh, he, whenever he had a debate with somebody, this was his, his way of basically swamping them with so many points that they couldn't possibly respond to all of them. Yeah. So he would, he would fire off like, like 15 or 20 things just in one response to one question. And then the person would just kind of try to pick one of those and do a detailed response to it. And then he would just come back with the, the, the 14 that he missed and then add another 15 on top of that. And this is something that you see in a lot of people who are spreading some kind of disinformation uh, or who want to you know, persuade people uh, of their point of view and aren't perhaps entirely honest about what they're doing is that they just swamp them with these things. Like if you look at flat earth, for example, in a completely ridiculous example, but there's, there's a famous thing, which is uh, 200 proofs. The earth is flat by, by Eric Dubay, which is based on an older thing. 100 proofs. The earth is flat from the 1800s. But you're having a lot of things in some ways, it just overloads the brain and you just, you just can't respond to it. And you almost kind of, you just give up in a way. Well, I think that's like kind of talking about that. That's like what we see even just on TV, like on the news, you know, mm-hmm. like this is kind of like Neil Postman's criticism of television in the sense that it decontextualizes everything by just rapid firing this information at you with no context. And so then your context becomes the universe of all contexts, not because you chose to make it that, but just because the brain kind of defaults to that. And so, you know, you see this, I think, on a lot of, like, news now where they'll go to discuss a point, but rather, since they only have 90 seconds or two Mm -hmm. minutes or whatever, it becomes, well, let me say a bunch of really sensational kind of sentences that will make great sound bites. And the other person who they brought on kind of almost as the sacrificial character goes, hey, well, let me talk about that one thing with a little nuance. And they're like, no, it's over. And so... Or you get one sentence. Yeah, people kind of, I think, get these very, at that point, like flat interpretations of things, (laughs) just goings on. Yeah, you certainly see that in the news. And I've been watching uh, um, NPR news, uh, which which is better in some regards. Obviously, it's got kind of a uh, a liberal bias to a degree. But I I found myself, when I started watching it, I was was kind of surprised at just how long they, they would spend talking about a thing because I, I I kind of expected this uh, very rapid fire thing where they would ask them yeah. two questions and then they move on to the next person. But sometimes they would talk to someone for like five minutes and I'd be like, "Whoa, what is this? Like a documentary or something?" But <laughs> because you, your expectations become this this just kind of sound sound bite type um, information stream. Yeah, 
Well, and I think, I mean, again, Neil Postman talks about this a lot, but kind of an interesting point is, you know, back in the day, like in the middle of the 19th century, when presidents had debates, those were like whole day affairs. You know, like Lincoln would have three hours, the other guy had three hours, then Lincoln had 90 minutes, the other guy had 90 minutes, and then it was like 30 minutes, 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. That was the day. And so you definitely have an opportunity to have much more nuanced understandings of things versus now it's just like, you know, throw two people up and they've got 60 minutes, two hours maybe, and they're just trying to hit the highlights. And so I think, but this goes way off into like my ideas about, I think we have a poor relationship with certain medias currently, you know, like, I think that's part of it, it's structural, like this conspiracy thinking and stuff like that is maybe endemic to the ways that we are communicating in the 21st century. Yeah. Maybe not having like stop gaps or fail safes or something, you know, because we're living in this really frothy statistical information rich yeah. environment. Yeah, very complicated environment it's complicated and we didn't have the access to all this information before so it was we had, we yeah. had a much simpler view of the world and i think part of the issue is like our brains you know we're not wired for statistical kind of thinking we're wired yeah. for this like you know linear sort of connective narrative that's why people crave these patterns people crave these stories we're i mean we tell stories that's part of like homo sapiens we tell stories that's Part of having these cool brains yeah. and we want to connect those dots and so we see all these data points we see all this stuff happening in the universe and we're like oh let's make a story out of it do you see why these people are obviously running a pedophile cabal out of a pizza shop and you're like i didn't before but i do now. <laughs> like <laughs> so you were you were you know deep into it you know you always said you were watching uh videos like four to six hours a day or more yeah, uh, and yeah then things changed? Um, I mean, it's one of those things, it's going to sound weird because I, I mean, I really can't describe it exactly. Um, I think I noticed like maybe some strain in relationships with some people in my life because I was a little obsessed with some of these ideas. Um, and it's one of those things, you know, it doesn't make for very polite conversation, right? So. Mm. It's running in your head all the time. You're thinking about it, but because it requires like so much to just bring people up to speed, if that makes any sense. Yeah. You yeah. can't just like go and say, Oh, well, Hey, this guy that actually just wears teal track suits and believes in whack shit. Yeah. You, you, you just can't. They have no context. Yeah. To understand what you're saying. You said, I think that, reinforces that like isolation that a lot of people run into with this is because you're like oh, well nobody understands me and i hope the only person that understands the truth so i gotta find other people maybe that are like me and i got to this point where i was like man i feel like i may be alienating some people in my life and you know several nights maybe of just doing this from 11 o'clock at night until six in the morning and then sleeping a few hours and going to class it was after one of those kind of like all night youtube binges or something I just looked up and I'm like, I'm, I'm tired. And hmm. what was the fucking point? You know, like, it just kind of dawned on me. I was like, look, this is all fascinating. Maybe some of it's true. Maybe none of it's true. I was like, and this is what I told you. I was like, 
even if it's all true, every single bit of it, whatever my like particular conspiracy of choice was at that time, like what was I going to do about it? You know, because like a lot of these, especially the more you delve into the like macro conspiracies, like the ones that encompass everything, the, the universal Catholic conspiracies, mm-hmm. right? Illuminati. Exactly. Once you get into those, you really have to ask yourself, like, okay, I mean, if there really is this like society of masons or whomever that have been guiding humanity for tens of thousands of years or whatever the idea is, it's like, how is me on a message board at mm-hmm. three? 30 in the morning like am i doing anything like or am i just if it's true i can't do anything because these guys have had this shit on lock for thousands of years and if it's not true then it's a waste of time like then i'm literally using my real time my real energy my real life force on something that's just not real yeah that's really interesting because it, it kind of gives me the idea that uh realizing you couldn't do anything about it uh, kind of gave you mental permission to kind of question whether it was true or not. Because if it's, if, if, the, if you felt like you could do something about it, then it would be very important to discover uh, you know, the, the, the truth behind the world. And so you would, you wouldn't want to let doubt creep in because you were so convinced that it was this really, really important thing the way you were actually, you know, saving the world by exposing these things. But yes. if the, you then can't, if you then think, oh, well, there's nothing I could do about it anyway, perhaps you don't worry about it so much. And then you get to actually start analyzing it more. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's interesting for sure. Yeah. I, I hear people kind of have conspiracy fatigue and this, especially with things like the nine eleven people, uh, they they've been believing that 9/11 was an inside job for like you know, nearly 20 years now, and uh, at a certain point they they realize that you know it's not going to change. There's the, the, there's no traction and the the theory is kind of not not going anywhere, and they they move away from it. But it's not clear if they just simply get tired of it uh, and just you know, still believe it, but just move away from it, or if they actually um, start to question it and uh, and start to think that it's not true i mean when you 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 went through this change yourself and you you thought like you know what's the point uh, if it's true or or if it's false you know same same deal did you then start to change in the way you actually believed that there was something going on so i think it happened gradually and i think for most people it probably does Hopefully. Um, but for me, it was like that first kind of night of being like, I've got other things I got to do. Mm. I literally just wasted, wasted, I guess, but like, you know, eight, nine hours of my night of my life staying up all night looking into this stuff. And I really have things to do today. You know what I mean? Like it's legitimately going to affect me. So it was like, that was the first big kind of aha moment of like, maybe this is unhealthy. Maybe this is like a poor thing. And I'd already kind of picked up on, you know, people maybe being weirded out by some of this stuff. And like, like I said, the general alienation of other people in my life. And so that was kind of the big aha moment for me where I was like, look, I'm just going to, you know, shut it down, not pay attention to any of this stuff for a while. 
And, you know, because a lot of these things are predicated in some way on like paranoia or fear, like it would come back up occasionally, you know, over time. But just like anything else, like the cycles were greater each time. So it started out like I wouldn't think about it for a day. And, you know, the day turned into a week, into a month. And then it got to the point where, you know, it had been so long that I would look back on some of that and be like, that was kind of ridiculous. Hmm. Yeah, that was maybe not my proudest moment. But uh, again, I think part of it is you get so into, especially again, like I said, the universal conspiracies, whatever they are, the Rothschilds, the Jews, you get to a point where some of it just doesn't seem tenable, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. I think that's maybe... So how would it work? How would this... <laughs> yeah, like the... How would they even do this? The curious tinkerer in my brain is always like, detail-wise, like, how would it work? You know, like... Yeah. I often tell people that I'm like, simultaneously the most credulous and skeptical person they'll meet in a day. Because like, I want to drink someone's punch. Like, I'm there for it. Like, tell me about your thing. And then I want to pick it apart. Because I want to see exactly like how it could be true or not true. And I think the problem is people don't often get to that pick it apart stage. You know, like you said, like, how does it work? Because at the end of the day, when you really start peeling apart some of these larger conspiracies or more engrossing conspiracies, like the idea that some of these things would be covered up or how they would work in the real world, it's like this would involve what, 300, 400, 500,000 people and they're all in on it? That seems doubtful. How would 500,000 people keep something like that quiet? Yeah, and that's uh, something that uh, you know, I always bring up with things like 9-11, when you consider that pretty much uh, over half of all FBI agents were tasked with investigating 9-11. So either the, they were entirely inept uh, or half of the FBI or the entire FBI was in on it. And of course, some people will, will go with that explanation and they will say that, that, that millions of people are, are in on these conspiracy theories. Yeah, like, you know, if you, if you already think that the entire news media is, uh, is, is telling you lies on a daily basis, which, you know, of course, you know, there's, there's various shades of that, but on, on the extreme level of the, the news media you know, being complicit in covering up things like 9-11 conspiracy theories or chemtrails and things like that, it's it's a lot of people and uh, it's pretty implausible. Uh, and some of the, the reasons people give for that uh, being plausible don't, don't seem plausible at all to me. They say, well, people are, are afraid of losing their pensions, so they keep quiet. This is the, the, the weakest excuse, excuse possible. Well, I think you've probably mentioned this before too, like there are certain events that occur that are then subsequently taken advantage of in some capacity. Mm-hmm. And then that is a foothold for people to be like, ah, see, yes. and it's the, like, who benefits. Exactly. Then? And it's one of those things like, especially having done more and more research on 9-11, it's like, look, this is very likely, you know, something that just happened, you know, 19 terrorists, Al-Qaeda, they did this thing and then other people capitalized on it. Yeah, there's definitely a conversation to be had about like media capitalizing on that, of government and executive branch capitalizing on terror. There's yeah. absolutely something we need to discuss as a, a post-industrial society about how we respond to those things. Should people be able to leverage that in such a way? Of course. 
but to get to the point where you're saying like laser beams, missiles, aliens, it's like that ain't it. It's quite amazing what people will, will accept. And I think in a way you gave yourself some space, which then allowed you to revisit things with fresh perspective. It's like you know, the old saying that you know, the best way to improve your writing when you're writing something or whatever you're doing or composing music or whatever is to put it aside for a few days or even a week or so and then come back and look at it with fresh eyes. And you, you, you can't make much progress on things like that if you're just completely in it and you don't have this, this, this perspective from the outside. So just the fact that you got tired and gave yourself a bit of time off and then came back it's actually something that I recommend people try doing. Like, you know, just don't do it for a week and then come back and, and look at it again and uh, see if it feels different. And I think a lot of it, I mean, it's an addiction. You know, it's, mm-hmm. um, I think people are having the same kind of problem now with like their phones when it comes to information addiction or just like sensory stimulation addiction. Because I think everyone's kind of gotten to the point, you know, where, you look at your phone for the umpteenth time of the day and you're like, why the hell did I just do that? You know, it's like, you just got the twitch. You just got to do it. And I think it's the same with some of these thoughts and these ideas as you're just sitting there refreshing forums and like constantly trying to find that next thing. And it, it, it's an addiction. Yeah, no, I, I have a problem too. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook and I'm on my Metabunk forum. I mean, I deleted Instagram like a couple of months ago. So I was like, I got stuff to do in my life. I deleted, what was it? Uh, World of Warcraft, uh, oh. the video game, because I, I, I could feel myself getting addicted to it when I started playing it. And I could feel the repetitive behavior and the little rewards that it gives you. And I could feel myself getting sucked into it. So, yeah, it's, it it's kind of like one a, instance of like looking down at the clock and it being seven o'clock and then looking back again and it's four hours later and you're like oh what and then you're like okay maybe pump the brakes yeah no i can totally see that i used to be addicted to the news when i was young and i I actually used to watch the news tv news between like five o'clock and eleven o'clock uh you know on days when i had nothing else to do i would just sit in front of the tv and watch watch the news on in 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 the uk because the different channels would have their news programs at different times and i think there was a one hour break in the middle where i could have my dinner but yeah, I can totally understand this this feeling of being being sucked into this uh, this information stream, which yeah, I guess it somehow triggers little receptors in your brain to uh, release little bits of chemicals when they, they they see the recognition. Well, I think in a lot of ways, kind of talking about my collegiate experience, I was blessed because I didn't watch TV in college. Mm. You know, I think growing up, like I've throughout my life maybe had this thread of like trading an addiction for another whatever that might be at the time and um most recently it's kind of transmorphified itself into a caffeine addiction you know which is socially acceptable so it works um but you know earlier years 13 to 18 or whatever tv was the thing you know i can think back now to just watching all kinds of stuff into the middle of the night, you know, and this, yeah. just like, oh, well, Three's Company's on, Roseanne's on, <laughs> just watch another episode. And it's like, why? Um, yeah, and I yeah. think, you know, 18, 19 year old me saw some of that behavior and was like, look, this is probably not meaningful to you. 
And so I stopped watching TV in college. I was just like, yeah, I'm going to take time off of TV. It was kind of a decision I made. And for like four or five years, didn't watch TV in college, really. I mean, I would watch it if I was like at a friend's house or obviously we were watching a movie or something. But this idea of just like passive engagement with television. And that really kind of reset me going into my like mid to late 20s to where now it's like, going out to restaurants, which obviously no one's done in like a year or so, but you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like going out places, if there are just all these TVs on, it's very distracting to me. But other people have normalized that. that that's, you know, a kind of baseline din of just information at them. And I'm like, this is, I can't do this. This is very stimulating, you know? Yeah, it's like some people have the TV on in their house all day long. All day long, like- from morning till the evening, which, you know, I think obviously a lot of people find that perfectly normal and they, they, they can get along with that. But, but for me, it's, uh, I, I turned on the TV when I want to watch something specific and then uh, just do it for a certain period of time. And the idea of having the TV on all day long has, has been very distracting for me and I, I don't like it at all. I can't, because <laughs> when, when the TV's on, I get sucked into it and there it is. That's yeah, I'm the same it. way. Yeah, I can't, if I'm trying to work on something, I end up just watching the TV instead. But I wonder if that, like, that kind of influences people's mindset in terms of how susceptible they are for conspiracy theories. If, if they're so used to just consuming a stream of information all the time, like if they, they grew up and they had you know, Fox News or whatever, or CNN or even just like ABC on the TV all day long, they would kind of expect to have an information stream all the time just in the background and you know youtube would be a natural next step for that you just sure you just and well people do that now yeah people in my generation for sure you know you just it's all youtube and you're just chain videos and youtube's like we got this really awesome algorithm it's going to tell you what you want to watch next you're like sure i do want to watch that yeah i think that's an interesting point um i don't know this kind of goes back to my whole like conversation with television and neil postman and stuff but there's a guy named Jerry Mander, who wrote uh, a book called Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television. Mm. And he wrote it in the late 70s. And so obviously some of the data is different. Now, we probably hopefully have more information. But I mean, it's still a very cogent kind of argument about this medium, right? Because now the only conversation that's had is the content on the medium, not the medium as such. We don't really ever critique the medium as such, you know? back in the 50s and the 60s and 70s, people were still having that conversation about like, is TV really a good idea for a democratic Mm -hmm. society? Now it's just like, should we have two titties on TV? And it's like different realms. But in it, he talks about how um, they've done studies to show that when you're watching television, and I assume all of this likely holds true for YouTube videos and things like that. I mean, it's very much the same kind of idea because you're participating in only two sensory engagements, sight and sound, it kind of puts your mind in like this quasi-hypnotic state. You know, Mm. they've checked brain wavelengths and that's what they've discovered is that you kind of become more docile and more receptive to whatever you're just ingesting or receiving constantly. And so I think, honestly, in my kind of, opinion that's maybe where we get this idea of like messages and brainwashing or whatever it's like yeah that kind of idea maybe is occurring at some level in the sense that people are lulled into this 
docile mental state to where they're then just like fed, you know, bits of information and sound bites that they take as, you know, rule and law and fact. Uh, but the idea that it's like, you know, they're flashing a picture of a hot dog and they're like, I gotta go buy a hot dog. Like, eh, very unlikely. That's not, I think, how it's working exactly. Yeah. And I don't yeah. think that there's some grand ball of, you know, Nielsen report people who are like, oh, we're going to brainwash the masses. I think it's just something that's kind of, again, endemic to the technology that we're not aware of. And it's the same with social media, where it's like, there are certain things that are maybe happening in that technological sphere that we're not privy to. We don't know because it's only 10 years old, you know? And so we've got a lot of maybe blindness to these things. It's only 10 years old, but it's, it's evolving, I think, a lot faster than TV did. I mean, TV was, uh, although TV has evolved, obviously, quite a bit. If you watch some of the old TV, it's like you know, ridiculous variety shows with people playing the piano and uh, singing, which uh, you, don't, you don't see that anymore. Uh, but let's, let's move on to, um, like, you know, one of the reasons you talked to me was that you read my book. Yeah. Uh, when, what you emailed me and uh, you said it kind of gave you kind of a, a new perspective, I guess, on some of the stuff that you had been percolating in the background. Yeah. Um, kind of the story was I had made, you know, I, I read books all the time and I'd made kind of a reading list of just conspiracy theory books or conspiratorial sort of thinking. Um, and I think yours was of all those books, maybe like five or six books where I was like, I just want to read something about this. It was the only one that had an audio book available. So I was like, mm. okay, well, I'll read that first or listen to it rather. Right. Yeah. Um, Cause especially at the end of 2020, I think it is very clear that there's a lot of just that mindset in the world now. And as somebody who had come kind of from that, it was very readily apparent to me where it's like, what used to be very fringe sort of ideas have now been moved to just like casual conversation points mm -hmm. and like people that I would just assume would never in my regular life have contact with some of these ideas or information were bringing it up like it was common. And for me, that was a little disturbing. And so initially I set out to research and read on just like, what is the conspiracy mindset? Like what, makes people think these things and obviously like i have my own ideas that you know we're participating with television and social media in ways that we don't necessarily understand and that's certainly a part of it but for me i was like what what what's causing that you know like when you go out and make the proclamation that the entire dnc is a group of satanic worshiping pedophiles who are participating in blood ritual sacrifices and they're stealing an election on a massive scale. And that's just like something you think is common parlance. It's like, mm -hmm. that's bizarre. And yeah. that was happening several kind of places in my reality, whether it was coworkers or whomever. And I was like, yeah, a lot of, again, these ideas that used to be very fringe have become very mainstream. For me, that was disturbing. And so I wanted to look into that. I wanted to be like, well, what makes people think these things? How do they get there? You know, what's that all about? And so I started listening to your book. And I was like, I don't, I think I read maybe the blurb on Amazon or something. And I was like, yeah, it seems good to me. Like, why do people, you know, think about conspiracies? Or why do they believe what they do? And I was like, that's, that's intriguing. Um, 
And then I think at the very beginning of it, you kind of net out what you're going to do throughout the course of the book. So you talk about how, you know, the idea is you run the whole book saying, you know, pretend you have a friend, maybe the friend is you, maybe it's just actually a friend that you're trying to take care of or help in some capacity. And like, here's what we're going to do to kind of maybe at the very best, steer them in a little bit of a different direction or provide them more information about some of these things. And I was like, okay, cool. I don't know if this is, this is me driving in my car. I was like, I don't know if this is exactly what I signed up for, but I'm like, I'll listen to it, whatever. I've got it already. Um, I think I mentioned this to you in your email where, <clears throat> or in my email to you, where when you mentioned things like, yeah, we'll talk about flat earth and, you know, uh, we'll talk about chemtrails. My mind is immediately like, yeah, that's easy to debunk. Those are bullshit. And then you're like, well, we'll talk about Sandy Hook, 9-11. And then kind of very deep in my mind, I was like, well, okay, maybe I'll, I'll listen to whatever he has to say about Sandy Hook. But 9-11, I was like, Phew. everyone knows 9-11 is an inside job. Uh, and like, this is me just driving, just thinking about this. I'm like, there's no way. This guy's not going to get it. He, he's not going to get me. You know what I mean? I was like... And that was something I hadn't thought actively about for years. You know, again, you mentioned people maybe get conspiracy fatigue and then move on to something else. Like that probably kind of happened to me with 9-11 Truth and stuff where I had cemented a lot of those ideas, you know, in 2011, 2012, whenever. And then I had just simply never revisited them. But they were still ideas that I had to where, you know, any day of the week, if somebody was like, well, how did 9-11 happen? then that would have been like, oh, well, let me tell you about that. So yeah, you kind of talk about these four conspiracies that we're going to cover throughout the book. And again, chemtrails for me, automatic no-go, because I can remember being in third grade and reading the science textbook and you're in the like meteorology section. Mm -hmm. And it's like, here are the different types of clouds. And sometimes airplanes make contrails because they just condense an atmosphere and make clouds. Nine-year-old me was like, that makes perfect sense. And so, like, I've never even thought twice about it. I was like, yeah, that they're just clouds. If you're like, but they're spraying chemicals, it's like, literally, no. Just mm-hmm. no. Then flat earth, obviously. <clears throat> yeah. That's talk about. Um, but yeah, you know, 9-11 and Sandy Hook. And so Sandy Hook was one of those ones, because I formerly fell into the category of dispelling everything immediately as false flag. You know, I think I maybe picked that up from my parents or whatever. And so it got to a point, what was one of the more recent ones, like Vegas Pulse or whatever, where I I wouldn't even go back and research anything. You know, like I wouldn't care. I would just see that something happened in the news. It was a mass shooting. I'd be like, it was probably a black ops SEAL team. And like, there would be nothing to check me about this. Like, I would just think that. And so that's kind of where we were when I was listening to this book. You know, and then you mentioned people's respective stories with each one of those deals. And then we get to kind of covering the brunt of 9-11 stuff. And, you know, I think it's interesting. You talk a lot about like AE 9-11 truth. I somehow was never even aware of those people until Hmm. your book. And so I think maybe having steered clear of that was maybe to my benefit. But you mentioned, you know, several things You're like, hey, here's some proof, here's some evidence, here's some information. And one of the ones you mentioned was the NIST report from 2005. 
And so me, like, you know, I'm not in this to be an advocate for a conspiracy theory or another. Like, I'm in it to just know as much as we can, you know, like the quest for truth, if you will. And so when you're like, oh, hey, there's a misreport, I thought to myself, oh, well, I've never even heard of that. I never even knew that. Um, and I went and pulled it up and I researched it and read it for a few hours. And I was like, yep, like we're done here. Like there's not much more to talk about. And then I yeah. saw all of the NIST videos that they've made where you're talking about teams, teams of structural engineers and code designers and fire proofing experts and professionals who spent their lives, their livelihoods, lifetimes researching this stuff, putting everything into this like 300 page report. And it's like, uh, yep, this is pretty open and shut for me. Like, okay, cool. Yeah. And I think I sort of fell into the controlled demolition aspect of the whole thing, because like I mentioned to you, uh, my dad is an architect mm. and I remember very clearly like the days after 9-11 and stuff like that i mean people forget this but it was the only thing on tv for oh yeah weeks months you know like this is in a lot of ways like a pre-contemporary internet world so yeah you got a stream of 9-11 all yeah, day long people were on the, the tube all the time just constantly looking at this stuff and you know i remember him i think the very first thing he thought was like yeah, they fell down because of the fires. Like that was like 9-11, day one, that evening or whatever. He's like, you know, buildings catch fire and they collapse. But then after that, you know, he he was just, I think, incredulous mostly. Like he couldn't accept that it had happened. And so kind of, I remember, he, it's not like he ever, you know, went crazy and had like whole boards of research on the wall or anything. It was never anything like that. But I think because he couldn't just grasp like the enormity of that particular traumatic episode, he kind of defaulted to being like, it does look like it was demoed. Like that's what buildings look like when they get demoed. And it was never anything that he even maybe said directly to me or to anyone else. It was just kind of like, we'd be watching this endless stream of TV. And then he would kind of like mutter these things, just endless hmm. like controlled religion, you know? That's him just kind of talking to himself. And, you know, 10-year-old me, very impressionable as a 10-year-old, was like, oh, well, that's got to be the truth. Yeah. You know? And so, like, I had, again, that kind of fertile ground for conspiratorial thinking. And, you know, you got all the stuff there. It's, like, straight from your parents. He's got ethos being an architect. Like, okay, that makes sense. And so then you go from that jumping off point of, like, oh, well, I think it must have been designed demolition to why did it happen? Who did it? Who set it up? Why was it going on? Um, but then I mean, you read that NIST report and you're like, oh, okay. This is mm -hmm. way less imaginative in the sense that it doesn't have this massive fantasy story to it, but it's real. Like that's the brass tacks of it all, you know? Yeah. It's, it's really interesting, you know, your dad being an architect and you not being aware of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, which is this organization of architects and engineers who promote the controlled demolition theory and also not being aware of NIST because Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, their entire thing is all about saying the NIST report is wrong and here's, here's why it's wrong. 
but would your dad have been aware of those things, do you think? Uh, I think maybe, again, like, my parents were never, they had a very, like, superficial sort of relationship with things in general, but especially hmm. things in the news in particular, where it's like, you know, maybe he thought that, or maybe he has, like, conspiracy theories in general of things, but he never decides to dig in deeper. It's just like, oh, well, you know, the Democrats want to take your money from taxes because this or some other vague notion about that. And that's really all it ever is. It's always very kind of surface. So the idea that maybe he thought it's some kind of design demolition, but then never explored it any further makes a lot of sense to me. Like he probably would have. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, again, at that time, he would have been in his mid to late forties. I think there's, you know, the idea that maybe even if he had that thought, he didn't want to pursue it because of Mm. like, think of the genuine terror of the implication, right? Like, okay, so it is design demolition or you follow that hypothesis for a while. Like, what does that mean? You know, in a lot of ways, like that really upends, you know, the fabric of reality. Like, who did this? Why? Why did they do it? Can we trust anyone? And so I think maybe as like a, a mental protective measure, he was just like, no, I'm not going to think about this anymore. Yeah, it's, it always reminds me of what you were talking about, like where you 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 know you recognize that there was you know harm being done to your life by obsessing about these things, and then what 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 difference could you do anyway? Yeah, yeah it's this kind of conspiracy fatigue uh, type thing where people just don't, they you know p- people have you know, their, their lives in the world where they're, they're doing stuff and getting on with their lives. And then, you know, they also have these, these conspiracy lives sometimes. Uh, and I think sometimes you just see this, this balance shift, like people become obsessed with conspiracy theories at, up to a point, And then they realize that their, their real life is, is suffering. And then the, the balance kind of shifts. It doesn't necessarily mean they stop believing in these things. It's just that they don't think about them anymore. And I mean, that's for sure what happened to me. You know, like I said, I hadn't thought about it for seven, ten years, maybe. Then I think it is very amusing to me, like how visceral it was, though, when you're like, we're going to talk about 9-11. Right. It's like, no way, dude. Inside job. And then, you know, like I said, I I read the NIST report. I looked at a couple of other things where they, I'm sure have seen all of it at this point, but like, the you know 3d modeling and like heat mapping of world trade center seven yeah. it's like hey this is how this happened and mm-hmm. i think a huge part of it is people just aren't familiar with how buildings fall down you know right. like you know you mentioned in the book and you talk about the reason it looks like design demolition is because if you paid somebody money to tear these buildings down that's how they would do it they would do it in such a way that the building used its own force to fall down. On yeah, itself. yeah. Or like building seven. Yeah. Or people have this idea that these buildings are super robust and it's like, no, kind of the trick is like, you know, the feats of modern engineering and architecture are very mm-hmm. amazing. But at the end of the day, like they have tolerances. And once you kind of destroy those tolerances and move beyond it, that's it. Like they're not designed for these extreme case scenarios. I mean, world traits are what, like, WTC2, they talk about it having deflected like two feet or more. Like this whole building. Yeah, yeah more than that, I think. Feet and twisted. Like, yeah. 
which they were just, designed to do to sway a degree in the in the wind and they if you have a hurricane buildings actually do sway noticeably because they have to to kind of absorb the uh, the hurricane force winds which the and, buildings were designed to do and to think about that plane though impacting it like 27 inches of deflection that's a ton for a building that big or you know you've discussed like momentum because i think people don't have a good idea of dynamic systems right mm. you know people are like oh it's moving faster than free fall and it's like well okay but like the physics of moving bodies is certainly different when there are so many dynamic elements in this system it's not just like high school physics throw a tennis ball and catch it like you've got all of this compounding momentum you've got stuff it, it's very complex right. you know yeah and so, so- oh, good so how how long ago was this that you kind of you, know, you read my book and you had this realization about the NIST report? Oh, I mean, I like I said when I emailed you, which would have been a few weeks ago now, a month right, or so. Yeah, I yeah, what, had so not just, yet finished yeah. listening to it. Right. So yeah, it's about two and a half weeks ago. And it was one of those things, like it was just such a kind of a neat moment that I was like, mm-hmm. huh, you know? I mean, I kind of explained it all in email where I was like, hey, you know, you've changed yeah. my mind. Like, well, but given that it's it's still so new to you in a way, like the NIST report and things like that, <clears throat> do you think there's a possibility that you could be persuaded now in the other direction? Obviously, I don't want to do that. But, you know, it, it seems like when people very rapidly change their mind, <clears throat> is it possible that, you know, you could now say someone from Architects and Engineers for 9-11 truth, they get in touch with you and they say, like, you know, hey, Alex, uh, let's, uh, I heard what you said and I think you're wrong about this and I think Mick is wrong about this and let me show you this. And, and they say, here's a professor in Alaska who's done this, this, this study on Building 7 and he, he did all this, this work of uh, analyzing it and simulating the building and he proved that it couldn't possibly be collapsed from fire. Do you think you could get sucked back in or re-persuaded? I mean, this is one of those things. It's interesting you mentioned that because I kind of had a microscopic sort of similar experience to that already. And this is certainly not maybe the most enlightened position to take, but like I kind of made the decision Hmm. to not wade into some of those spaces. Um, And that happened to me a couple of weeks ago. So I was like, looking at those other conspiracy books or oh, I know what it was specifically. I was reading Amazon reviews for your book. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I think I was maybe looking for other suggestions and things to read or whatever, but I was like, well, why do people, why do they give them one star? I always want to read those one stars. And so, yeah. you know, someone in there posted a link and like, Oh, here's my, this is all nonsense. And, you know, I clicked the link and I went there and it was some website that, wasn't even like a secured http obviously so it's some like weird part of the internet and it was like new information reveals you know Mm. and it's this like 13 17 minute video of some guy like explaining why like nist calculations were wrong and they got all the math wrong or whatever and i had like this impulse i was like oh well i should for the sake of science you know like that's the the thought like oh to be a reasonable person and i was just like no, no, like I don't, I don't need to do this, you know, because I realized I wasn't doing anything healthy by like trying to kind of open that back up. Like 
it, it's kind of like you mentioned with World of Warcraft. Like you kind of feel that right. yeah. re- reflex very early on. And I noticed that and I was like, I don't, I don't need whatever this guy has to say. And at the end of the day, I kind of also thought, I was like, this guy might cover a lot of stuff, this person, whomever it was, like that, that I just simply won't understand possibly mm-hmm. in a 15 to 17 minute video. And what have I done, like, beneficially for myself at that point? Like, now I'm just back in the mode of, like, not liking anything and being untrustworthy of everything because I watched one guy talk about the math for 15, 17 minutes. And then I was like, no, I just got to stay away from this. Yeah. Um, and again, that's that's not certainly the most enlightened position, but it's one of well, it's, you know, it's self-preservation. Very practical, I think, and realistic because, you know, most people are not going to get a degree in structural engineering uh, just so they can figure out exactly what happened on 9-11. So you're going to have to rely upon the expertise of others. And so you've either got like on the one hand, like NIST and all the structural engineers, uh, the majority of all the structural engineers out there, and now you've got this small group of people uh, and you know, this one guy in Alaska who's uh, telling you something else and yeah, most people, even I aren't, aren't fully capable of understanding all of the science behind it. And so you, to a degree, you have to rely upon you know, your understanding of how the world works and wh- whether people would be lying about these things rather than the actual science itself. Well, I think kind of a meaningful point that you could direct with people who talk about like AE 911 truth and that stuff is that, and this is something I'm, pretty familiar with at this point doing what I do being a home and building inspector and like being involved in that world of constructing buildings and making things happen and putting things into reality and it's like I told you like I'll be going back to graduate school this year to do a master's in science construction science um I think people if they're from the outside they don't realize that yeah somebody can have a structural engineer designation or this license or this training and still fundamentally like maybe not know what they're doing or yeah. not know what they're talking about. You know, it, it's like any profession, any profession anywhere, people can get licensed, get certified, and you're going to have a whole spectrum of humans who participate in that profession, mm-hmm. regardless of the designation. And so you have people who are like, well, there's 1200 engineers, architects and engineers for 9-11 truth. And they all think this. And it's like, yeah, like, yeah, they're all architects and engineers, but like, that doesn't mean they're all great. And like, you know, a lot of the times you run into people who have like a structural engineer degree from 40, 50 years ago. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, a lot of retired people. Yeah, like, it's like, okay, it's technically he's a structural engineer. Yes, this person has done this, but like, there's a difference in, again, I think people, just saying they're structural engineers or they're engineers or they're architects, it's a very flattening kind of interpretation because just because one is an architect or is a structural engineer, you know, maybe all that they're familiar with is building nursing homes, building homes, building parking lots, industrial one of them. buildings, parking lots, building yeah. uh, traffic control scenarios and uh, mm-hmm. civil engineering, that sort of stuff. Like, and so to sit there and say, okay, maybe this person is a structural engineer, but most structural engineers I know only do homes, only do industrial properties, only do like office and you know multifamily or something to that effect. They all have this niche. 
So the idea that you have a thousand or twelve hundred architects and structural engineers who all are familiar and conversant about eleven hundred foot tall mm-hmm. buildings is very unlikely. You know, yeah. like people kind of forget, and again, the magnitude of some of these projects, like when the World Trade Center was built, it, it was huge. It was a huge deal in the sense that they are literally. I mean, it is the, it was the state of the art of like how to do things. Like the conversation of the external skeleton, like trust design frame, that is the state of the art. Even the elevator technology was like mm-hmm. the state of the art. And so yeah. they had to pull from the best of the best to even make that happen at the time. And yeah, we've obviously taken that and moved forward in architecture and we've, you know, copied it and modeled things off of it since then. But not everyone knows how to build skyscrapers. Not everyone knows about skyscrapers. And the people who do probably literally only do skyscrapers. Or furthermore, and I think this is where people don't appreciate the granularity of like task specificness in these fields. It's like the guy who probably designed the hat trust, that was it. That's probably what that guy did. Or, you know, there was yeah. a guy who probably designed like several floors and that's it. You know, like that's yeah. how specific these people's involvement get. So then this notion that there are these people that just come at it like, well, I'm a structural engineer and let me tell you the what for. And it's like, you, you can't know everything about this. It literally took hundreds and hundreds of people to even analyze what happened to it because no one had this corpus of knowledge required to know what was going on. Yeah. Another thing with structural engineers is that their, their job is to make a building not fall down. And so they're experts in making it uh, not fail. When what, what you need is someone who understands how a building will fail and in what way it will fail. Because, you know, if you just make it kind of, uh, fail in which in one floor just sags down a little bit or it just tips over to the side or something like that it's that's not going to work so it's it's almost like you don't want structural engineers uh who are concerned with building things you need structural engineers who are concerned with destroying things which would be you know demolition experts or and some kind of like building forensics professional yeah there are people that yeah. do that you know like they well, <laughs> the, the funny thing there is the uh, the guy in alaska dr leroy holsey is actually a uh, forensic structural engineer uh but his expertise is is mostly in uh, in bridges rather than high-rise buildings so and that's think, kind of what, we, what yeah, you're saying before because it doesn't necessarily translate you know uh, and I have a very perfect example for that, like literally in my life, you know, where I was looking for a structural engineer one time for something and I uh, called up a guy from that I knew from college or something. And I was like, hey, you, you do engineering, right? And he's like, yeah, but we do. He literally said it like this. He's like, everything we do is horizontal. You need somebody that does something first. <laughs> like, that's how he broke it down for me. And I was like, oh, okay. And so, I mean, I think that's a fair point even with your guy in Alaska. It's like, it's not the same. Well, it'd be interesting to see if you do actually look into this more, if you, if you find any credence in their arguments, because I, I know exactly what you know, anyone who's, who's watching this or listening to this, who is a believer in architects and engineers for 9-11 truth, 
they're just going to say that you haven't looked into the facts of a 911 and therefore you don't uh, you you would be persuaded if you if you had looked into it uh this is one of those things like you know they they put out these long videos that they kind of look persuasive on the face of it but really they uh they're, they're full of holes because they're only they're only arguing from one perspective well and again i think the videos are so ensorcelling because people don't understand the data are so cherry picked in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like the same with World Trade Center 7, right? Where they're like, see, look, this building looks fine. This building looks fine. And then it's like, no one ever shows what is it, the south side that's literally been covered in debris and ripped to pieces and full of fire. And like, yeah. like all of the fire chiefs that day that were like, yeah, we're literally, we're just not going to touch it. Did everyone get out of the building? Great. Okay. We're not, we're not going to do anything. Like we can't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they, you know, the firemen saying the building's going to collapse, which of course the, the, the conspiracy theorists take as being that the firemen were told that the building was going to be demolished, which then leads you to that everybody in the fire department, everybody around there had to be in on the conspiracy. So it's, uh, well, know, what's interesting to me is, sense. you know, you have these, like it's one thing to go off maybe the deep end with the firefighters saying it, but like firefighters probably have been around buildings that have collapsed, you know, like that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. that's probably a story that gets shared amongst that community. Like yeah, Inferno yeah. is raging long enough. Like if it's a sufficient conflagration, yeah. like you'll see it creaking down. and sagging and uh, hear the noises. But yeah. when, I mean, I went through and watched like a ton of nine 11 footage a few weeks ago. So it sounds like, trying to you know reactivate some of those neurons and see mm. if i could just dredge some stuff up out of curiosity and you know, you've got all these like home recorded videos you know thousands of people around new york and manhattan that day that were making home videos i mean obviously not on their cell phones at that point but just making like home videos and stuff and i can't tell you how many of them you know whether it was 10 seconds or 30 seconds or 10 minutes or whatever all of these different videos of people you know, because everybody was just huddling around staring at it. Like, every other video had somebody being like, that's going to collapse. And we're talking at like 9 yeah. in the morning, 9.30 in the morning. And it's because even then people were like, if that doesn't get abated, it's just, it's going to collapse. And Yeah, well, there, you there saw the no big hole to, in the side of the building, which was... Yeah. <laughs> and there's no way to sufficiently attack a fire. Like, I mean, it, it's just, you think about it, it's eight, nine floors on fire and like, Again, it just goes uncontested. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they would have uh, argument. Well, they, obviously they do have arguments against yes. it. But... You, you, can't, you can't win yet. It, you have to know like you're going into a, a losing battle. And I think that that's maybe one of the biggest points from your book that I feel like a lot of people, if they're out there kind of listening to this and they've got someone in their life who's, you know, on the QAnon train or whatever mm-hmm. train, is that like you're you're very focused on trying to suffuse compassion into the situation, which I think is very important. Like you don't want to try to attack people, you don't want to try to come at them and like kill them with facts and logic or whatever. Your role is to just kind of like come down the mountain, provide information, go back up the mountain. Like all you can do is like water on a rock, you know? Like try your best meet them at their, their level, be generous, be polite. And if they still don't listen to you that day or care, know that you did what you could and just kind of yeah. go on and then maybe try it again. You know, I mean, this is the same thing. I think like 
certain faith traditions and teachings try to teach us and not enough people eat it there either. But that's, I think, a big part of your message in the book. It's like, just be as compassionate as possible because these are still human beings, you know, like that's, I think one of the issues we maybe run into with being afraid of conspiratorial minded people is that it's like, well, that's dangerous. We got to round them all up or whatever. It's like, Hey, they're humans. And you, you stress this a lot too in the book where you're like, initially trying to figure out what gives people that proclivity for conspiracy mindset or why do they go into these directions and once you kind of reach the conclusion where it's like we don't really know it could kind of happen to anyone like that's mm-hmm. one of those really sort of humbling moments where you're like you know it's very much like if not for the grace of god there go i like you know anyone could go down that and once you realize that it's not that person's fault or they're not stupid necessarily because some of these people are incredibly intelligent, you know? Um, and that's yeah. what, you know, disturbed me, especially recently with a lot of the like human obstacles. These are otherwise like upstanding, regular members of the community, very intelligent human beings. But then the next thing you know, they're like believing this other thing that's very fringe. And so I think the huge part of it is putting that humanity in the situation and knowing like, these are people, treat them like people. Like, yes, these ideas might be dangerous. Yes, you might not agree with them, but your role is to just try to constantly, you know, come back to them and be like, have you read this? Have you thought about this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I, I obviously I agree with all of that. And uh, I think that's probably a good place to kind of wrap it up. So. Thank you very much. Uh, this has been like really interesting. Uh, I think your perspective is really, really great. Like you're, it's kind of like showing things for me in a kind of a bit of a different light, just, you know, coming from this, this perspective of growing up in the conspiracy theories and having it being such a fundamental part of who you are that you, you almost like just didn't think about certain things uh, for a while. Uh, and, you know, and then how you finally, it's like you know you've you've got training now as as a uh, yeah, building inspector and I mean engineering, and I, th- I think that it's almost like the, you've had like these two parallel things and they kind of come together and the you know the one cancels out the other thing at some point. But it, it took you know this kind of trigger of you actually thinking about it again for it, it actually to 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 be like you know purged a bit more from your system. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Alex. Yeah.